education is the least disrupted industry in our country. We spend $750 billion a year. When it comes to education, America is using a 175-year-old industrial model approach, argues former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She is one of the very few department heads to have advocated for the abolition of the agency she ran. We don't even begin to understand the breadth and magnitude of the learning loss, the negative impact on kids, particularly the most vulnerable kids, low-income kids during the pandemic. And you couple the learning losses with the mental health challenges, and you have a disaster looming. DeVos is the author of the new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education of Freedom and the Future of the American Child. Tonight, she breaks down creative new approaches to schooling being adopted in states like Florida and Arizona that could soon change the game for millions of children across America. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Betsy DeVos, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's great to be with you. It's been several years since we spoke last. You were the Secretary of Education at the time, and you were getting... I think it's an understatement to say a ton of flack for just about anything that you were trying to do. Um, and I, you know, you've written about it in your book. What is it like to be outside of government now? Like, how, how has your life changed? Well, I've been busy writing this book, which is about how we actually fix American education. And uh, it's been very, uh, in, I, I would say, energizing and cathartic at the same time. And uh, I'm continuing to advocate for kids and for their family's ability to direct their own, you know, their own child's education as I had for 30 years before I went to Washington. So in that regard, not much has changed. I just am able to do it now with a different perspective and a different set of experiences. And I'm working with governors and state legislators and uh, some of our federal elected officials as well to really promote and advance policies that are going to empower families to do just that. So tell me about this different perspective. Like, what is it that you, what, what were the big lessons of being in, the, in an administration? Well, it only confirmed further for me what I knew before even going there. And that is the federal government does not do education well. It is not involved in education in a good and positive and constructive way. It is really the purview of the family and the most local units of government that really have to be able to uh, take charge of and control for the kids' education. And we're seeing this happen now in more meaningful ways across the country, with Arizona being the most recent state, the first state to enact a, a universal education freedom policy, which is going to change the life trajectories for thousands of kids in that state. I'm very excited about that. I'm also excited about how that's going to continue to build momentum in other states for the policy changes necessary to do that same thing. And so it's interesting to me because you were the head of, you know, a, a large department, you know, federal department, of course, you know, education is left to the states, but there's been all sorts of federal mechanisms created to be able to influence the states with time, right? Yes, well, uh, people often don't realize the fact that only 8 or 9% of funding for education, for K-12 education, comes from the federal government. And yet the regulations and all of the policies that 
directly impact state and local education uh, are far beyond that eight or nine percent. And so there are a lot of strings attached to the, the money that government sends and funds for K-12 education. Uh, I contend that that money is better spent when directed by families from the state level as well. And I, I use the metaphor of a backpack. Kids go to school every day with the stuff they need for the day. Metaphorically, we should attach the funds that are already being spent on that child to that child's backpack for that family to figure out, is there a sign school working for them? If not, let's, let's figure out where is going to work. And education, K-12 education, is the least disrupted industry in our country. And it is an industry. We spend $750 billion a year on K-12 education. And we continue to get poorer and worse results in spite of the fact of spending more and more and more money. If we, are, if we would empower families with those resources to make those buying decisions, we will get the creativity and ingenuity and entrepreneurship we need in K-12 learning experiences that we haven't had to date with a 175-year-old industrial model approach. What place is there, if any, for a federal department of education? I've had someone on the show very recently who simply said, do away with it all. Right. I, I concur with that. I think the department should not exist. It was a payoff to the teachers unions that Jimmy Carter made in 1979 or 76 when he was running for election and it was actually affected or implemented in 1979. We have since then spent over one trillion dollars at the federal level alone with the express goal of closing the achievement gaps. Not only have those gaps not narrowed one little bit, by most measures, they've actually widened. And so there is no compelling reason for having a federal department of education. There are a couple of laws that need to be, uh, we need to make sure are followed, uh, protecting civil rights and making sure children with disabilities have the kinds of supports they need. But those don't need to exist in a federal department. They can exist in another already established department and be overseen very well in those places. The Federal Department of Education does not add any value to kids' educations. You're perhaps the first department head I'm, I'm aware of who's advocating for the abolition of the department that they headed. I did, while I was there, I said I, was, I would be very happy to work myself out of a job. And in fact, the last two budgets that we presented to Congress actually sought to block grant all of the funds to the states and, and uh, local districts. Uh, Congress didn't, uh, didn't take it up seriously to, to even debate it. I hope they do. I, I think it's, it's a very worthy discussion, particularly with how we've seen the uh, system act and respond this last two years when families have had a front row seat to see firsthand the failings of the system. You know, I want to talk about this Arizona law that you mentioned earlier. It's obviously like a major development. Before we go there, I just want to touch a little bit on, you know, this past administration. You actually quit following January 6th. Um, you said that President Trump had crossed a red line. I want to give you a chance just to kind of say your piece, like wh what exactly happened so people understand what your position was very clearly before we continue. 
Well, uh, to put it a little more in context, following the election in November, um, during the rest of November and December, when the there was debate happening around a second COVID relief package, there was a very real opportunity to get a school choice education freedom provision included in that bill. But the, the White House was not focused on doing those kinds of things and advocating for that kind of policy. And so what could have been wasn't. And my my role, my job focusing on doing the right things and everything we could for students, um, I had, I'd pretty much come to the end of what we could possibly accomplish. And on January 6th, when I saw what was happening and uh, I didn't hear the president say the things that he could have or should have said, at least what I felt, to put an end to what was happening. Um, and when he turned his back on his vice president, it was it was a kind of a, a line in the sand for me. I also felt we should have been taking victory laps about all of the accomplishments of the administration, of which there were so many. And instead, we were focused on, on this. And so I'm, I'm always a forward-looking person. That's what I continue to do, and that's what I think we need to do. Uh, it, look ahead. Let's learn from what we did in the past, but let's keep uh, moving forward and uh, doing the right thing for, in, in my case, the right thing for kids and more broadly, the right thing for Americans. So, you know, you again, you started talking about this Arizona law. A number of people are saying this is groundbreaking. There's been nothing like this before. So, you know, tell me a bit about this law. Do you see this as the future for the American child? Um, and, and where should it go from here? Yes, so the uh, education savings account is what Arizona just passed and, and Governor Ducey signed into law. That means that for all 1.1 million students in Arizona, if their families decide that the school to which they're assigned is not working for them, they can take 90% of what the state would spend on that child and use it to buy that child's education. They could use it to go to a different school, one that requires tuition, a faith-based school or another private school of some sort, or they could use it to customize their child's education and uh, maybe buy a couple of classes at one place, maybe buy a virtual class, um, maybe a, you know, a couple of classes at a charter school, let's say, uh, any combination of, the, of those things, or perhaps some things that haven't yet even been developed. In Arizona, during the lockdowns, there were many families, uh, many of them in the urban areas, that started to band together in small cadres or con consortiums of families and, and basically start up what I would refer to as a 21st century one-room schoolhouse with multi-age kids. Um, they would hire a teacher that was looking for a different experience. And uh, for them, that's if that's working, they need to have the opportunity to continue to pursue that kind of experience for their children. And, and like I said, the, the, uh, the system is, has been so one-size-fits-all for uh, 175 years, we haven't really wrapped our heads around what education in the K-12 years could really look like for kids because we haven't had the kind of creativity that we've seen in every other industry. This in Arizona, and I think there will be other states that will soon follow, we're going to see that creativity really uh, fostered and growing in ways that we haven't even, we can't predict today. So you're just making me think of something bizarre that I heard fairly recently. Um, uh, basically, 
in a school where uh, all the teachers were not in school, right? This is in New York, basically, right? One of the moms is, is describing the situation. Um, the parents banded together and created one of these schoolhouses in that same school. <laughs> and they said, how bizarre an experience was that? Like the teachers couldn't come and they were actually, some of these teachers were somehow involved in the creation of this as well. So on the one hand, the actual system wasn't really functioning except perhaps virtually, although, you know, not certainly not at 100%. And on the other hand, there were people creating these sorts of things, in some cases even employing people that were involved in the educational system in the first place. What do you make of this? Well, I think it, it's just one example of people finding solutions to problems. And uh, I've used the example recently of a small school that I'm familiar with in West Michigan. I live in Michigan. Uh, it's cold in the winter in Michigan. And yet there's this small school where the kids are outside all day, all year long, and they're learning outside and they choose to do this. It is an outdoor school by design. And the teachers who are there are choosing to be there. And I use it as one small example of thinking about solutions that we need to be much more open to. Because we know kids learn differently. They have different needs. And parents, again, have had front row seats to that in the last couple of years. And they've seen if distance learning was just the ticket for their child, or if it was a disaster. They've seen, uh, in many cases, curriculums that they didn't want their children to be exposed to. And in other cases, they've seen uh, curriculums that were very low in their expectations of what a child could do. And they're, the, you know, the parents may know that their child is capable of much more. They should have the opportunity to find the solution that's gonna work for that child to unlock that child's full potential. For all intents and purposes, from everyone that I've heard, uh, the distance learning didn't work for most kids. It worked for a few kids that were very self-directed, but it didn't work for most of them. And I guess I, the, the other part of the, the, the previous question, you know, there's just, these teachers weren't, weren't in school, right? And so th this is one of the reasons the parents start, had to start organizing. But what about the fact that these teachers weren't in school in the first place? There's a lot of contention well, about that, right? And, and I think uh, many of them had longed to be in school. They knew that they were that their kids were falling further and further behind. Uh, but the system, in many cases, precluded them from doing that. There were a lot of teachers who I think have walked away from teaching because they've become so frustrated by the system. And in an education freedom environment like Arizona is just creating, teachers are going to become the most valued part of that equation. And there are going to be opportunities for them like they've never seen before. Opportunities for them to be really creative themselves about solving problems for families and kids uh, or addressing needs. And, I, and I'm just very excited about what it can mean for students in Arizona and, and more broadly, how it's going to continue to drive change. Because we know that this is a, a, a very um, winning issue for families, for everyone across, like four, uh, three out of four Americans say money for students should follow the student to where that student goes to school. That, you cannot deny the power behind that sentiment. And when that, will act, when that actually happens at a scale to really make a difference, 
again, we're going to see creativity and experiences for kids in their K-12 learning that we haven't even begun to dream of because we're just so stuck in this one-size-fits-all old model that, uh, that is no longer working for way too many kids across the country. You're expecting, because of this new legal structure around the funding for, for students, all sorts of new models will spring up, teachers will be able to enter them, figure new things out. That's it's sort of like this innovation land in education. A absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, Florida is one state where they're farthest along with the most, the greatest number of students. They're going to continue to expand those opportunities for kids. We're only at the tip of the iceberg as to what that could look like. I want to touch a little bit more on this, the learning during the pandemic. You know, I think you, you were urging schools to open, you know, very early on. And I think you even threatened to, to withhold funding as part of the urging, so to speak. How did that end up playing out in the end? Well, uh, there, there was no ability to withhold funding at the federal level. But we did everything we could as an administration to urge and encourage uh, schools, systems, all of those involved to find the solutions to get kids back to learning. And again, we don't even begin to understand the breadth and magnitude of the learning loss and the impact, the negative impact on kids, particularly the most vulnerable kids, low-income kids, many, many kids uh, you know, from minority families. They're the ones who have been most hurt by the system's uh, behavior during the pandemic. And you couple the learning losses with the mental health challenges and you have a disaster looming. Again, this is the ideal time for states to change their policy to support funds going to the families for their children's education, not to systems or buildings that are going to simply double down on doing the same thing the same way over and over again with more money and expect different results. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened in the last 30 years. It's not going to happen tomorrow because the system is bent on saving and serving itself. You know, this is something that's been really troubling me, this, you know, arguably a genera generational crisis caused by these two years for some students of almost a complete loss, right, of education. I forget what the numbers are exactly, but some significant percentage of students is almost a complete loss in the, you know, in the prime of their lives, so to speak, or their childhood lives. Um, one way to deal with it is to adopt new innovative methods, but have, have you thought about how America and frankly every country that's faced this is actually going to deal with this, right? Well, you're only, I believe you're only going to deal with it when you interject creativity and entrepreneurship into it to solve problems because you are not going to get a different result by doing the same thing. And we've seen families actually start to address these issues because they did so out of necessity during the pandemic. We should support those and many more who are suddenly attracted to something different because they've seen, uh, they've seen the opportunities. And the reality is that the traditional system or systems, they're going to ultimately make changes because they're going to see the competition. They're going to have benchmarks to be able to compare themselves to. They're going to make changes that are ultimately going to benefit kids too. But you have to allow for 
the families to make those choices and those decisions in order to in, in, in order to foster that kind of change. Were there any policies that you instituted while you were the Secretary of Education that you felt you know just didn't work out the way they were planned or things that, that you wish you had done differently now with a bit of hindsight, like looking at it? Well, I wish we had been able to get the federal tax credit to support education freedom passed and accomplished. Short of that, everything else we did was really focused on uh, doing the right thing for students and um, our, our work on Title IX, on making sure that kids, uh, who, when, when they are on campuses and they have a, an issue with sexual misconduct, that they, are, that they have a framework that is fair, that is balanced, that is going to treat everyone fairly and with uh, with respect and and uh, put you know the one who brings it forward in control of what happens next that that and other issues and other issues on which we regulated or are dealt uh, those are all try uh, the, the the current administration the Biden administration is trying to undo all of those and turn us backward it, this is a, a travesty for students and uh, we have to speak up we have to we have to push back against this effort to uh, to totally upend all of the progress that we made on behalf of students. It's kind of a fundamentally different view of how education should function, isn't it? Like, I mean, you know, we, we saw this the, this debate that saw Glenn Youngkin win in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe said that parents didn't have any business uh, in their, you know, knowing or directing what was going on in their child's schools. I mean, he said he, he doubled down on it. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, to yeah, I parents. You stopped it. the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Good. Do you feel like that is, that's the M.O. here with undoing these pieces? Or what, 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 do you, what do you think the operating principle is here? Well, it's a very, very left-wing, far left of, uh, of the Democrat Party that is really driving these policies. And they are really turning, um, turning back and, and doubling down on the disastrous policies that the uh, Obama administration advanced. It would... Uh, totally reverse everything that we did. It would um, also expand the definition of biological sex to gender identity and basically anything you decide at any point in time. And it would, it would decimate women's sports, ultimately. So we, we also have this situation where uh, there's a lot of people that are advocating against school choice who actually send their kids to private school, right? And this is, I've always, this has always struck me as kind of a bizarre dichotomy. Well, it's, it's a total hypocrisy. It's uh, for people who consistently fight against low-income and middle-income parents being able to make these decisions. They're making those decisions themselves. And the fact that they blatantly do so without apology is, it, to me, I, I, I cannot fathom it or understand it. I, I just, I don't. These are the very kids they profess to want to help, and yet they consistently protect and defend a system that denies those families those opportunities. I want to talk a little bit about higher education, about college. You know, New York University right now, it's like if you want, a year is something like 80 grand, $80,000. You know, it's it, very difficult to access for the majority of Americans, right, or frankly anybody. And so, you know, 
D does that make sense? You know, at, no, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And you know, the cost of education has continued to sky the, of higher education has continued to skyrocket, and you saw it take off dramatically when the federal government, when they federalized student lending under the Obama administration, ostensibly to pay for Obamacare. Not only has it not paid for anything to do with Obamacare, it has cost American taxpayers, most of whom never went to college or took out student loans, billions and billions of dollars. It is an unsustainable model. It is uh, out of control. And now you have an administration that's trying to for, you know, wipe away all kinds of student debt. You cannot do that. Like the, the president cannot do that. He cannot legally do that on his own. And you cannot say that with a straight face that uh, wiping out a bunch of student debt is a good policy because it is not fair to the two out of three Americans who didn't go to college who will ultimately have to pay those bills. And it's not fair to the students who took out student loans and have faithfully paid on them, or the families that saved for their children to go to college, or for the veterans that served and earned their college funds. It's not, it, it makes zero sense. And even if you said it did make sense and you wiped it away, where does that leave you? You haven't solved anything. You're going to have students next year taking out student loans, and you're going to have the same problem all over again. So this is an issue that Congress and you know the, the administration have really got to deal with. It is unsustainable the way it has gone. There is uh, no accountability on the part of higher ed institutions for uh, what kind of quality or what kind of outcomes they are serving up. And, uh, and there's just no governor on what they can charge for a, a tuition. And just, you know, for those uh, those of us uninitiated, you know, what are the nuts and bolts of how that worked? How did that Obama-era policy basically create this trend? Well, there used to be pri private lenders that were backed by the federal government for certain students. And that worked. It worked for everyone. But the federal government took over all student lending in 2010. And at that point, and then, they, so they send all the student loans directly to the schools. And then the schools take out what they're gonna take out, and if there's some left over, then the students get it. But very often, the students don't understand the implications of that, and they will go and spend it on things that are not related to education, which is a, not a good decision either. And so the whole model is, it's not a, a logical or, or um, you know, defensible model for the long term. But, but, and then, but how did that actually balloon these? Is it just the universities? Well, could, because yeah. they're, they're, on, they're on the government's balance sheets as, they're all, as though they are all good loans that are going to be fully repaid. And in many cases, they're not. And in many cases, students have elected and, and Congress has continued to uh, adopt all of these uh, repayment plans that are based on a student's income versus uh, what they actually owe. And so they're ultimately paying back pennies on the dollar from what they have borrowed. And someone somewhere has to pay that. So I guess, I guess the big question here is, right, American education already prior to COVID was in rough shape. Right, and I, we talked a little bit about this already, and so now we have this prototype 
in Arizona, but we still we don't know for sure how that's going to play. What are you suggesting well, states do? Well, I'm suggesting all states uh, adopt policies that are going to give parents and families the freedom to direct their children's education, to choose where their child gets their K-12 education. And uh, I've, I've cited Arizona as the most recent state, the first state to do a universal model and approach. But there have been many other states that have been uh, very uh, forward-leaning on this. Florida, Indiana, Louisiana, Wisconsin, Ohio. There are a lot of states that have ha have undertaken these programs. They've been at smaller scales, but Florida, as I said, is the most advanced in this, has the greatest number of students in programs, other going to schools other than their assigned schools. And interestingly, the districts where students are the, the highest number or percentage of students are going to schools other than their assigned school. The students who are remaining in their assigned schools are actually, the, uh, the outcomes, the achievement levels are actually improving. I argue th there has not been a definitive study on this, but there's a couple of reasons, logical reasons. First, the kids have left. If that school wasn't working for them, they're choosing to go somewhere else that's, that is working. And the kids who are still staying there are, are the beneficiaries of leadership now making decisions and changes that they, ref they refused to or wouldn't make before because they have other schools and other experiences now to benchmark themselves against. And they're actually improving opportunities for kids within the traditional schools as well. It's a win-win for everyone. And, and the, the system that continues to defend the monopolistic government-run system cannot fight back against these arguments because they are, they are obvious and they are, uh, they are uh, proliferating in many states where, they, where these policies have been adopted. So you're very obviously, you know, against critical race theory praxis within, you know, education, K to 12, any, I suspect any area, right? Um, now, what do you make of the fact that, you know, some of the most woke schools are actually the elite private schools? And so, you know, it, you, you, we talk about school choice, the opportunity, ostensibly, this, these are the schools that anybody would dream of coming, yet, yet they're the ones that have, seem to be hit by this ideology perhaps the most, I mean, obviously not empirically, but, but it, that, that's what people are telling me. So what do you think of this? Well, this is a problem uh, all over the place, and that's why I think parents need to be demanding and expecting radical transparency around curriculum. And uh, while these elite, many of these elite private schools are experiencing this same type of phenomenon, or families have finally found out about it. Uh, there are many other schools, faith-based schools in you know, states across the country that have been doing a great job of preparing and educating students and giving families opportunities at much lower cost than these elite private schools. Many people, when, they, when we talk about uh, uh, choosing a private school through a, an education freedom model, immediately go to these you know, $30,000, $50,000 a year schools. But there are many, many schools that educate children at a much lower cost, you know, $10,000 in some cases less, and, uh, and have a faith-based, uh, you know, grounding that are doing a good job, and families want to have, be able to make those choices as well. And so that, you know, these policies can support 
whatever families decide is going to be the right environment and the right setting for their kids. So you're seeing this correlation between them being faith-based and having the more classical education model, basically. That's that's what you're well, saying? Yeah. There, are, there are a lot of classical models that uh, there's classical charter schools, there's classical Christian schools, um, uh, there's, you know, and, and that, that uh, that focus is, I think, re been reawakened and is going to continue to grow. The uh, opportunity to access those opportunities is, is only going to happen for all families if they're empowered to make those choices with policies that support that. Got it. Um, any final thoughts as we finish up? Just, uh, I, again, I, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, my book is really about how we fix American K-12 education and how we can make it, learning a great experience for every child. And I hope that folks will enjoy it. Well, Betsy DeVos, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much, Jan.